The gospel reading this morning comes from the gospel according to John. It's found in John chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 5 and then verses 9 through 14. And then we will read responsively the epistle responsive reading from Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now responsively from Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is the word of the Lord. Let's return to the scripture that we read just a few moments ago with Brian from John, the first chapter. Last week, we began the Advent season, Sunday after Thanksgiving. We began with intending to look in depth at the incarnation. The subject last week, the story of the Son of God before the incarnation, in glory, before he took on flesh, we spoke of the preexistent Son of God of whom John spoke In this first chapter, Louis Burkhoff, the brilliant Dutch theologian, wrote, Jesus the man 
Jesus the man did not acquire deity. Rather, the eternal son of God took on humanity. I hope you'll learn that and use it and quote it. What was the son of God doing before the incarnation in this preexistent? What was he doing? John says he was with God. He was in perfect communion. He was in conversation, perfect relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. We weren't created because he was lonely. A conversation, this relationship had been going on for an eternity. So he was in this relationship. He was creating. John says all things were made through him. Thirdly, he was living in glory, worshipped and praised by all of heaven. John says we beheld his glory, the glory that was his. An eternity before the incarnation. This week, we will focus on the four words, the word became flesh. The word of God, deity, became flesh. I can't teach this so that it will make any difference in your life. No one that stands behind this desk, as great as this chapter is, can speak so that we'll be changed on the inside. That's by the power of the Holy Spirit alone. So let's pray and ask him to teach us. Father, before we ask you to teach us, we come as priests to pray for our friends, Phil and Sally Halley. Her father, you know all the details about Phil's condition. And we just turn to you right now as your children and say, Father, heal him. Bring relief. Show the doctors exactly what's wrong. And either heal him through the medicine they apply or Father, just touch his body and make him well. We pray for him. Just as the four men laid that paralytic before you, we lay Phil Halley before you. Bring healing. Our Father, speak to him as only you can speak to him. Bring comfort and peace to Sally. Give her wisdom in any decisions. Our Father, bless the Cruz family. And this great pain that they have suffered these last few months. We pray that you'll bring your omnipotent comfort to bear upon their pain, their sorrow. We pray that there will be joy in this house once more. That great and causing Satan great consternation. Because the people of God, even in the darkest hour, are bathed in the goodness of the Almighty and the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. So we pray. Now teach us 
Father, we're your children. John Sartell cannot teach us so that it will make any difference. But we pray when we leave here in a few minutes that we will know you have spoken. And we pray this for the glory and the honor of Jesus Christ. Amen. The deity of Jesus, why is it non-negotiable? John was writing in this first chapter, he was writing to a Greek and to a Jewish world. He had been raised in a Jewish culture, and certainly he was addressing that culture, the culture from which the Messiah came. But the world was dominated by the Greek culture that had been created as Alexander the Great conquered decades and decades before. So I want you to imagine this morning, as John was writing into this world, I want you to imagine that you are a 20-year-old student studying in Athens. You're not Jewish, you're Greek in the first century. You have received a scroll from a friend that has joined a new religious sect. He calls himself a Christian. You respect him, and so you take the scroll and promise to read it. He tells you that it was written by one of his teachers. So you begin to read. In the beginning was the Logos, the Word. Yeah, you've, this writer is speaking my language. He's speaking Greek. He is speaking my language as a student of philosophy. Greek philosophers were searching for the mind behind the universe. Just a minute. This microphone is plugged into a little cassette on my belt. And for some reason, it keeps hopping off. So maybe it'll stay on this time. The Greek philosophers were searching for the mind behind the universe, the reason for the universe, the logic of the universe, the logos. What's the logic? What's the reason for the universe? So this, this Christian writer's first words intrigue you, and you find no disagreement. You read, the word was God. The logos was God. Your Christian friend must be on to something. Maybe this writer named John does have something to say. And then you read, and the word became flesh. And you begin to laugh. And then you realize the writer is serious. This is not a satire. This is not a novel. Your friend who gave you the scroll has been deluded. God became man? Flesh and blood, that's ridiculous. So, let's stop for a minute and pretend to be another person. 
your young Jewish student studying in a synagogue in Alexandria, Egypt. You're given a scroll by another Jewish friend who claims that the Messiah of Israel has come. You've heard rabbis speak of the many false prophets and false messiahs who've come in the last few centuries claiming to be the Messiah. So you're skeptical about what your friend is saying. You're concerned. You begin to read the scroll he gave you. In the beginning was the word. You've seen that sometimes as a Jewish student, you have seen that sometimes in the Old Testament, the word of God was used, that term, the word of God was used to designate God. By the word of God, the heavens were made as if the word of God were a person. And so you're thinking, this is good. This is truth. And the word was God. It's good so far. But then you read, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And you gasp. Jehovah became flesh. Elohim became flesh. The idea of man claiming to be God shocks you. It's one thing to claim to be the Messiah, but to claim to be the Almighty? This false Christ should be stoned for blasphemy. My friend must be warned about this. Okay. Do you know how many thousands of times those two scenes occurred in the first century? They happened every day all over the Mediterranean world. Just like they happened in the first century, they're happening daily in the 21st century. Go to the powers, go to the cultural institutions that affect our culture go to harvard or yale go to hollywood go to the media centers of nbc cbs and abc go to wall street tell them that the son of god of heaven the son of god who made the world and became man came in the flesh his name was jesus Our culture finds that statement to be absurd. A fairy tale to many thinking persons. So then we must ask. We've got to ask. Is that really what John was saying? Could he, couldn't he have been saying something else? And so we, we review. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then it says, and the Word became flesh. John says, we saw him. We saw his glory. We saw him. Why, why did John write the book? Why did John write the book? Look at John 20, 30 and 31. He's now at the end of the book. And he's saying, hey, reader, 
You who have read this, let me tell you why I wrote it. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Here's John. If John were standing here this morning and you said, John, why did you write it? He would say, well, didn't you read my book? Didn't you read verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20? I told you I wrote the book so that you'd believe. I wrote about these miraculous signs so that you'd believe he was the son of God. Two other gospels, Matthew and Luke, record the historical details that we like to review every Christmas of the birth of Jesus. There's Elizabeth and Zechariah, the, the sons, the, or the, the father and mother of John the Baptist. There's the angel coming to Elizabeth and, and Zechariah. Then there's the angel coming to Mary. There's the angel coming to Joseph. There's the Roman taxation. There's this journey to Bethlehem. What is Mary? When the angel comes to Mary, what does Mary say? What's her response? How will this be? This, I, it's impossible for me to be pregnant. How can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called what? The Son of God. John knew what Luke had written. He knew what Matthew had written. But just in case we've missed the message of these historical details, God has John speak of the birth of Jesus without the historical details. John was saying, let me tell you what these historical details mean. They mean that the Word of God, the Son of God from eternity, took on flesh. Don't miss this. People, we hear from the world all the time. Well, you can make the Bible say anything. You cannot. You can isolate it, different, go to different passages, and if you don't go anywhere else, you can make it say something it doesn't say. But if you take Scripture as a whole, you cannot make it say other than what it says. Don't miss this. There's no other way of interpreting the New Testament. You can choose not to believe it. You can say that the New Testament writers lived hundreds of years later and really did not know Jesus. That is an absurd statement and intellectually inconsistent with history. But you can say it anyway. But the one thing you really cannot say is the writers of the gospel did not say he was God. That simply ignores the main theme of their writing. I'm intrigued by evangelicals who confess the deity of Jesus the same way that they give their name and social security number. Why don't we as Christians understand the gigantic nature of the incarnation? We said last week, there's never in the history of mankind been anything any other event, you name the event, there's no event in all of history since creation any greater and more significant 
than the incarnation. And you say, well, what about the cross and resurrection? The cross and resurrection has absolutely no meaning without the incarnation. I love it when non-Christians come to me. I love it when they say, do you really believe, John? Do you really believe God became flesh? I want to hug them. They, what they're saying to me is, this is gigantic. And I want to go say, to, I want to bring them to church Sunday and say, go tell the people this. It's huge. Nobody on this earth should celebrate with more enthusiasm, more joy than Christians. When we celebrate his birth. Having ascertained that John and the Gospels claim the Son of God became man. I want us to spend the rest of our time looking at this passage and seeing that the incarnation is a sine qua non. The non-negotiable of Christianity in our lives. It's not only true, but it's non-negotiable truth. Sine qua non is a Latin phrase used to denote the essence of something. What something basically is. Sine means without. Qua means which. Non means non. Not. Without which not. In other words, whatever is basic to something, that something can't exist without it. The heart The heart is the sine qua non of our living. Without a heart, I cannot live. If my heart stops beating, I will physically die. It's a sine qua non of my life, physical life, health. In that sense, the incarnation is a sine qua non of Christianity. Now, why do we make that statement? What Jesus said and did, all those miracles that we see, made the blind to see, made the deaf to hear, paralyzed, all those things are dependent on his identity. Last week, we saw Jesus speak in detail about his existence before he was born. Now, think about that. What if you walk up to somebody tomorrow and they say, well, let me tell you what I was doing a thousand years ago. You know, when somebody says that to you, you're going to cut off that conversation as soon as you can. The person's nuts. Well, Jesus is talking to the Jewish leaders. And he said, you know, your father Abraham rejoiced to see me in his day. I knew Abraham. Abraham knew me. They said, you're not yet 50 years old. How can you say you knew Abraham? You see, Jesus was just speaking. I mean, it was natural for him. He had been there. I mean, the the son of God, he was speaking as the son of God. He had been there before the world created. What else do you want to know? What he said flowed out of his identity. And then he said, I'll prove to you that I'm the son of God from heaven. How did he prove his identity? 
You said, see this blind person? He said to the blind person, see, and the person saw. See this deaf person? Can't hear? Hear, and the person heard. He spoke a word, and the dead were raised. Go back to that. Go back to that. Those two verses written by John. Look at it. John 20, 30. Jesus did many other miraculous signs. Notice they're signs. We want to say, well, he healed people in his compassion. It was his compassion. But the major reason he did this was to back up his claim. Jesus did other, many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. These miracles were a sign of his deity. How could they be a sign of his deity? Because no one could, but God could do these things. No one. John says, why do I write these signs? Why did I tell you about them? Not just because I saw them. Not just because of Jesus' compassion. That you might know he's the son of God. In theology, when you come to, if you're reading a theology book and you come to the person of Christ, it's always called the person and work of Christ. Well, why not just say the work of Christ? Why say the person of Christ? Because all the work of Christ depends on the person of Christ, who he was. His works are inseparable from his identity. If he were only a man, he could not do these things. Have you ever spoken to a storm and said, stop, and the storm stopped? You ever said, going to a funeral and walked up to the casket and opened it and said, come on, we're going home? No. But Jesus did that. And he did it because of who he was. He could do it. Have you ever noticed that the Pharisees in Scripture, they hated Jesus? They understood he was claiming to be God. They thought it was blasphemy. Have you noticed that the Pharisees never denied the reality of his miracles? As much as they hated him, if those miracles weren't happening, they would have said, hey, this is cheating. He's, this, this, is, uh, this is bogus. They didn't say that. They couldn't, they couldn't deny the reality of what they saw. So what did they have to do with these miracles? Because those miracles shouted to them that he was the Almighty. He spoke to them about meeting and knowing Abraham. They wanted to stone him. He was lying. But then he makes a blind person say, then they go to a party, and the party, you know, is there in the 11th and 12th chapter of John. There, They go to a party for their friend Lazarus. He had died. He had been in the ground, dead. And Jesus walks up to the grave and said, come out, Lazarus. Let's go have lunch. And Lazarus came out. They couldn't deny that. Go read John 10 and 11. Do you know what they wanted to do? This is perfect. Do you know what they wanted to do? Do you know? They had been making plans to kill Jesus. Now they made plans to kill Lazarus. 
because he was evidence that Jesus was really the Son of God. They made plans to kill him. So how did they handle this? They couldn't go around killing every person that Jesus made to see or hear or, or walk. So what did they do? Jesus healed a man. Read Matthew 12 this afternoon. Matthew 12, Jesus healed a man with an impaired hand. But he did it on the Sabbath. Can't go healing people on the Sabbath. That's work. And he said, Jesus has done an evil thing. You imagine that? Here's this poor man. His impaired hand has been healed. He can go back to work. Uh-uh. Shouldn't have done that on the Sabbath, Jesus. It was evil. And they called him evil. Well, they developed that thought in the 12th chapter of Matthew because they end up saying the reason he can do these works is he's of the devil and he's doing them in the power of Satan. See, you, you've got a real problem. If you're a skeptic here today, you've got a real problem with what Jesus did. Because those Pharisees were skeptic and they knew that these miracles were for real. And they pointed toward the deity of Jesus. If there, people, if there had been no miracles, people would have been shouting. The Pharisees would have been shouting, prove your claims. Do only what God could do. That's what, you know, prove it. You, maybe you've done this. Maybe you've had somebody come to you and use this argument and say, well, you know, what if somebody came up to you tomorrow and claimed that they were God, claimed that they were deity, claimed that they were the creator of the world and God Almighty. What'd you say to them? You probably have already done it. I've done it. I've had many people come to me and say that. I say to them, when they say that to me, I say, the answer's easy. If you make that claim, if you come and you say you're God, and then you go out tomorrow, and by command, by fiat, not by prayer, but by fiat, you command, and a blind person sees, and a deaf person hears, and the paralyzed person walks. And you go down to the coast and you stop a hurricane, just simply speak, and a hurricane disappears. You go do that. And I'll seriously consider your deity. But now let me ask you a question. Have you ever known anyone that did that? Can you go find somebody that did that? There's only one person in history that I know that did that, and his name is Jesus. Why did the disciples die? Why did, why did they suffer martyrdom? Before they denied his deity. They would not deny his deity. They died claiming his deity. They could have lived if he, they would have just denied his deity. Why? Because they had seen the blind to see, the deaf to hear, paralyzed. Well, they'd seen Jesus come out of the tomb. They'd seen him rise and go off to glory. People, this is so important. So I, any church that gets off base, this is where it begins. And it's so easy. I was raised in a denomination and watched 
the number of ministers grow and grow that denied the incarnation. They denied the deity of Jesus. I went to a college and was taught. The first time I heard this was in a Presbyterian college from a Presbyterian minister telling me that Jesus was not the Son of God. It wasn't the world telling me that. It was a minister. You know Ralph Waldo Emerson? You've heard of him. Poet, writer, leader of the transcendental movement. He said this, Jesus is the most perfect of all men that have yet appeared. He saw, he saw, excuse me, he saw with open eyes the mystery of the soul. Jesus was the only man true to what is in you and me. He, as I think, he, as I think, is the only soul in history who who appreciated the worth of man. That sounds beautiful, doesn't it? Harry Emerson Fosdick, 20th century Protestant minister, he said this, it is difficult to see just one vital significance of Jesus Christ. He has given us the most glorious interpretation of life's meaning that the sons of men have ever had. The law of love, the glory of service, the coming of the kingdom, the eternal hope. There never was an interpretation of life to compare with that. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? Thomas Jefferson said this, I I hold the precepts of Jesus as delivered by himself to be the most pure, benevolent, and sublime which has ever been preached to man. George Bernard Shaw, the Irish playwright, founder of the London School of Economics, he said, I greatly prefer Jesus of Nazareth to Caiaphas, and I'm ready to admit that I see no way out of the world's misery but the way which would have been found by his will. Each one of those men praised Jesus. Yet it wasn't the Jesus of the Gospels. Each one of those men in their praise and saying, look how wonderful Jesus is. Yet they all denied the deity of Jesus Christ. They all denied his miracles. They They all denied his atoning death. They denied his resurrection. Each one of those men denied the incarnation. Their statement sounds so good. Some of those people sat in their congregation where the minister was speaking and said, boy, did you hear what he said today? How wonderful it was. Such a beautiful statement. Those statements that sound so good that some shallow Christian might be tempted to quote, those statements are denial of the gospel. They each were saying, we don't believe the gospel. They take away the sine qua non of Christianity. And that Christianity is powerless. It's never converted a soul. It has never changed families and civilizations. C.S. Lewis made a powerful statement about this i'll quote it to you a man who was merely a man who was merely a man and said a sort of the things that jesus said would not be a great moral teacher he would be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God 
or else he was a madman or something worse. I have far more respect for someone sending to me and saying, Jesus of Nazareth was a madman. He was a lunatic. I have much more respect for that person than I have for the person that says, well, Jesus was a great, great, great man, but he wasn't the son of God. That option's not open. Great men who are sound intellect and sound moral character do not walk around telling a lie saying, I'm almighty God, if he's not God. There was a day, I was in Atlanta, Georgia. A group of men were gathering. I'd been following this for two years and what was developing inside our denomination as it became more and more liberal. And a group of men came together, and their intention was to vote to begin a new reform denomination. They voted that afternoon. I was in the room. There were about 50 people there. I didn't participate in the vote. I wasn't one of the officials, but I witnessed it. It was a historic day. Very unsuspicious. It was in the basement of a hotel. And afterward. Those men and their families and their friends, there were about 500, gathered in a church to hear Dr. Francis Schaeffer, the great prophet of the last half of the 20th century, speak. And he made this statement in that message. He said, when someone in today's culture says they believe in Jesus, we must always ask, which Jesus it's Jesus. There's only one. He's the Son of God and Son of Man. The Word became flesh. A man joined our church in Kentucky came from another denomination and he told me as we were talking about his leaving this denomination and coming to Tate's Creek he told me that he had made the decision that something happened that was a last straw I said what is that he said it's when our denomination began to ordain practicing homosexuals He said, that was the last straw. It was time for me to leave. I didn't say it at the time. But after he joined the church and we got a lot closer, one day I said to him, so let me ask you a question. He said, what's that? You know, we had this conversation. You said that ordaining the homosexuals into the ministry in your former denomination was the straw that broke the camel's back. He said, that's right. I said, in your denomination, had your denomination, had ministers in your denomination denied the deity of Christ? He said, yes. There were far more who denied the deity of Christ than affirmed the deity of Christ in our denomination. I said, 
Why didn't you leave the denomination then? And it hit him. For years he had been hearing his ministers deny the incarnation. And didn't do anything about it. And tears began to stream down his face. People, is the deity of Jesus Christ that precious to you? Your salvation depends on it. Don't you dare leave here today saying the incarnation is really not relevant to my real life in this very real world. It's a theological doctrine to which I cannot relate. If you do go away, if you do away with the incarnation, the entire superstructure of what Jesus did falls. It's destroyed. Take away the incarnation and you take away every miracle. Take away the incarnation and you take away the atoning death for our sins. Take away the incarnation and you take away the resurrection. Take away the incarnation and there's no way that Jesus today is in glory preparing a place for us. Take away the incarnation and you can stop looking for his return. Take away the incarnation and you take away the church of Jesus Christ. And you take away the worship. You tear it down. Everything we did this morning, everything was based on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Take away the incarnation. And you destroyed this table. Folks, I pray that this will be how Christ's covenant reformed church. I pray that this is where we'll stand and fall. Whether we'll stand, no matter what the cost. No matter what the cost. This table is precious, and it just flows right out of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Now let's sing as we prepare to come to the table. How deep the Father's love for us. Let's stand.